Hello and welcome back to Brain Food for General Counsel from Pinsent Masons. My name is Matthew McGee and I'm a journalist here at Pinsent Masons and we're back a little sooner than expected to help you to make sense of one of the most extraordinary times any of us has ever lived through. Businesses are at the sharp end of the coronavirus crisis, from looking after employees to setting up hundreds, even thousands of home offices, to providing the essential goods to keep society running, not to mention trying to come up with a vaccine which will hopefully bring this crisis to an end. So having taken an overview of the immediate situation two weeks ago, and do check out the last programme which contains fascinating lessons from past crises, we're now going to dive into some of the nitty-gritty. Pinsent Basins focuses on five sectors, advanced manufacturing and technology, infrastructure, energy, financial services and real estate. So we'll hear from the heads of those sectors at Pinsent Masons about the priorities in each of their areas and we'll get a sense of what action companies are already taking to mitigate the effects of the upheaval. Governments around the world have stepped in with unprecedented support for business. But is it enough? Is there enough finance available to keep companies in operation? And will the crisis spur businesses to innovate earlier than they'd planned? We'll hear about all that in the course of the programme. But first, we'll hear from Florian von Baum, who leads Advanced Manufacturing and Technology. Firstly, about what the issues are that clients are bringing to his attention. Well, um, I think most um, eminent at the moment, of course, is... is um uh, labor labor law issues how to reduce um how reduce labor costs um effectively by um by use of of government programs um other issues uh, relate to supply chain um uh, um challenges um are companies um uh, obliged to deliver um, what about damages uh, resulting from non-delivery? Uh, these are the, the, the more eminent and immediate um, needs clients have and uh, why they come to us. Um, I think on a um, mid-term and a longer-term basis, um, probably um, issues around financing um, and, and probably reorganization and restructuring of, of certain parts of, of, of their companies will be um, a field where companies have to, to react. All eyes are focused now on one area of manufacturing and technology, life sciences, biotech and pharma, from where we hope to hear news in the coming weeks and months of a vaccination against COVID-19. But even there, the coronavirus complicates things. The first assumption would be that pharma, biotech and, and medtech um, are the winners of, of the virus crisis, if you can say so. Indeed, when you take a look at the um, at the stock markets, share prices of, of many companies in that sector increased significantly, uh, in particular in areas which are close to the virus challenges, um, research on therapy or antibodies or vaccines but also medical or diagnostic equipment. Um, however, whether this reflects the real situation in all cases is, in my view, quite doubtful. R&D in pharma and biotech is always risky and subject to failures and setbacks. So um, we have to see uh, what the development brings. And we find some very practical problems also affecting the life sciences industry, like um, immediate supply chain problems and shortage of, of certain components, expert bans for crucial medicines, fraud and counterfeits, in particular for hygiene products, 
Demand for manufactured goods is now tightly focused on material that can help in the fight against coronavirus, especially medical devices such as ventilators and protective clothing for health and social care workers. So is everyone turning on a sixpence to change what they produce? In particular, in manufacturing, some companies have already started to change their product portfolio with products which probably have a more immediate demand now, such as ventilators or or masks. Um, To give you one example, Volkswagen uh, uses hundreds of 3D printers to produce medical equipment now. Um, Companies which have flexible production facilities or can can do additive manufacturing um, have a clear advantage here. And in life sciences, we also see some shift to R&D to move research capability from existing programs to COVID-19 programs. If the government measures that we've seen around the world are going to be a success, they'll have to help companies such as manufacturers, which can't be productive while their workforce is at home. But are the measures enough? Will there be a sector to come back to when this is all over? Um, I think at the moment, uh, you can never say enough has been done, but I think the right things have been done by the governments. We find in in almost all countries uh, new laws, um, which, um, um, for example, to help companies to reduce workforce temporarily and corresponding labor costs. Many countries have implemented respective regulations, also short notice loans and credits to secure the cash flow of companies of all sizes have been introduced to get companies over the next few months. In Germany, a new law um, was adopted, uh, which prohibits a termination of rental agreements because of non-payment of rent, at least for the next two or three months, and maybe longer. Um, So that's good on the one hand. On the other hand, companies should be very mindful what actions to take um, in that respect. I think companies should be really mindful and and, uh, be aware that all actions um, uh, could have some some, some, um, negative effects also in in the public opinion. Um, In a mid and long-term perspective, government subsidy programs are, in my view, not enough in particular, not for the manufacturing sector. There is an absolute need to increase the demand side. And it will be interesting to see what governments will do in that regard in the future. And last but not least, the financial strength of industries in our sector must be secured. We already see that central banks are taking respective actions to inflate the markets with money, but this will probably raise other challenges in the future, of course. Companies have to wrangle not only with whether those government measures are sufficient, but with the task of knowing what they are and how they operate. For infrastructure companies, which might be active in scores of countries around the world, the task simply of keeping up is a major one, according to infrastructure expert Ian Lang. One of the biggest challenges is making sure that the the business, your business, is up to date with current advice and establishing a means of communicating across the business in a clear way is a challenge for all businesses, including those in the infrastructure sector. Um, and when you're operating, you know, in an environment which is changing daily, sometimes hourly, and across multiple sites and potentially multi- multiple jurisdictions, with employees who are being flooded with, you know, information constantly, um, clear, concise, intercom or intracompany communication is is really really important. Um, that, so that that's definitely a challenge that that we and everybody else. Um, are, are dealing with. 
Construction companies will have spent recent weeks poring over contracts to look at clauses such as force majeure clauses that allow them some leeway in case of extraordinary events. But that leeway typically allows extensions of time, but doesn't protect you from the cost consequences of that delay. And companies have to balance exercising those rights to that leeway with the sense that they're part of a long chain of activity seeking to achieve common commercial aims. So what approach are infrastructure companies taking? Is it a pragmatic commercial one or are they seeking to enforce the rights they have in their contracts? All of those um, contracts that I'm involved in where we're discussing issues around um, the impact on performance of obligations under contracts, force majeure comes to the fore. And that is largely because the way that the construction supply chain works and the contracts within them work really requires contractors to notify often as a as a prerequisite of a right um, to notify of an event within a, within a limited period of time. Um, and therefore, even if one is willing to take a commercial view down the line, um, one has to serve the notice in order to make sure that you have the ability to take that decision later. As to whether people are, are, are taking commercial judgments um, uh, at this stage, I think the answer is is uh, not that we've seen. And I, and I say that, you know, living and working in Asia and, and, and having worked through some of the issues here now for, for, for over a couple of months, um, we're not seeing um, major commercial decisions being taken. People tend to be taking an approach where they're maintaining um, their contractual rights. But um, that's not to say it won't come. Um, and it, it is it is possible um, that the industry um, may uh, seek to share pain. I think the real problem for the infrastructure sector is they operate on such narrow margins. They don't have buffers on which to take more pain. Um, and therefore, for many of them, they really just feel they don't have a choice. I think where one sees differences and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in time, is where uh, large, and they are generally Asian, state-sponsored um, corporates um, uh, with, with access to cash um, are, are able to take a more commercial view. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. The position these companies take to cooperate and not invoke clauses about performance of the contract versus maintaining their position for future protection is bound up with infrastructure companies' financial position. It's not an industry where companies sit on enormous cash reserves, and this will inform every decision they're now taking. Um, as we said, margins are tight in the industry. Um, and so the longer term implications uh, are potentially very significant indeed. Um, you, you have um, a sector that in large parts of the world um, isn't operating at a sustainable level of profitability before they went into this to this crisis. Um, uh, and you can imagine with um, the strain, the fiscal strain that will come um, from taking the cost consequences of delay, um, even with the government policy of support that is available, that's going to be a huge challenge. The financial health of the infrastructure sector has never been particularly rosy. CBI did a report in relation to the UK market recently in relation to the financial health of the tier one contractors, which 
demonstrated a, a, an aggregate loss position over the last financial year for them. Um, that is true in other parts of the world. Um, even where there has to date been a boom, um, so in parts of Asia, you'll hear talk of the profitless boom. So yes, there is a lot of work um, available in the market, but making margin from it has proved um, hugely, hugely difficult. You can therefore expect to see, sadly, um, insolvencies, um, uh, restructurings within within the sector, uh, disruption to supply chains, um, uh, opportunistic um, uh, merge and acquisition activity, um, for sure, um, and uh, cash raisings um, uh, and all the things you would expect in cash-distressed businesses. Um, I think you'll also see, uh, in an effort to, to solve that, waves of government support uh, in terms of rolling out projects, much has happened after the global financial crisis. But you might see some other interesting areas of support. If you look at Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government at the moment is looking at uh, advanced payments against some of their existing contracts to kind of change the cash profile of their projects um, in order to front load them a bit, in order to uh, get the industry over this. Ian is based in Singapore, so is able to peer into the future a little bit for those of us based in the Western Hemisphere. The virus hit Asia hard and early and its spread and the measures to cope with it are two or three months ahead of Europe, the Middle East and Africa. And the news from that part of the cycle is encouraging. If you look at China as a an indicator of, of what may happen in the future. You have an infrastructure sector that is, that is in large part back to work. Anecdotally, at least around about 80% of um, construction sites in China are, are back to work, um, uh, albeit at, a, at an impaired level of productivity, but, but they're back. Um, supply chains are still disrupted, for sure, um, but, but, but work is recommencing and the signs are encouraging. Um, now, that's really um, taken two to three months to go from a, a, a particularly bleak outlook to something that looks much more positive. Um, you know, it's always tempting to see things through the lens of, of the now, but we could be looking at a very different world in two to three months' time. Let's hope so. But for now, the impact is still being felt in many parts of the world. Energy expert Paul Rice says that the lockdown across the world has caused oil and gas prices to collapse, with wide-ranging consequences for the energy sector. The biggest impact uh, has been the collapse in the oil and gas price. We're now back at 2002 levels. With uh, more than a quarter of the world in lockdown at the moment, uh, we're seeing a collapse of oil and gas demand as well as power demand and a consequent impact, over 60% reduction in the oil price at the moment. We are seeing concerns around uh, continued generation as well as maintenance as a result of uh, the availability of people, uh, as a result of the, lock the lockdown and illness. And then 
big impacts on the supply chain for new build projects as well as ongoing maintenance of projects as a result of the closure of factories. Uh, now, factories in China manufacturing an awful lot of parts for solar, wind, and other renewables, as well as nuclear and conventional power projects have reopened, but we're seeing supply chain impacts still ongoing, principally in Europe and elsewhere. Paul says that the lack of demand, collapse in the price, and the fact that vital workers are not available because of lockdowns is having an impact on the security of energy supply around the world, a serious issue for industry and households alike. The lack of available workers is also having an impact on deals in the energy sector to purchase assets or to build new ones, and is affecting the credit ratings of companies, making those deals even harder to engineer. So what are energy companies doing to deal with these problems? We are seeing clients uh, dealing firstly uh, with protecting key workers, uh, protecting their staff uh, through working from home, as well as ensuring sufficient staff, sufficient key workers are available to continue with generation and supply of both oil and gas, as well as um, supply of power in the conventional nuclear and renewable sectors. We're seeing energy sector clients looking at accommodating easier payment terms for domestic energy consumers who are experiencing financial difficulties as a result of uh, either redundancy, furloughing or uh, financial um, cash flow issues uh, in the households. Major cash flow issues for uh, the energy companies themselves and the supply chain, discussions with government around energy resilience and our clients reviewing their supply chain contracts uh, and having discussions with the wider supply chain around force majeure and change in law as a result of the various impacts we've already mentioned. It's clear that we will need to have serious discussions with procurement authorities, governments, regulatory authorities uh, going forward if there is a much more serious impact on the global demands uh, for oil and gas and power going forward. So the immediate issue is one of demand, and this has some major consequences for the financial position of energy firms. Cash reserves uh, across uh, the various components to the energy sector are stretched at the moment. Uh, oil and gas is has was coming out of a global slump and has been now knocked significantly by the COVID-19 impacts. Um, we're now seeing an oil and gas price that we haven't seen for 18 years. So an, an industry that has been very stretched over this past 10 years is now seeing uh, an impact that will not only lead to consolidation, but there will be uh, companies that will not survive uh, the current um, very low price pressure uh, in that industry. They don't have the cash reserves to, to carry them through. Utilities, were, particularly where they have government-backed contracts, uh, will have a certain uh, level of resilience. The issues faced by the sector could have ramifications long after coronavirus has ceased to be a threat. 
One of the things countries will be thinking about now is energy security and supply. Policies and strategies may well change in light of lessons learned in these intense few weeks. Energy security and energy resilience has um, been a long-term goal of most countries around the world for a very long time. Uh, I think the uh, interruption to supply chain and the ability uh, of um, matters in one part of the world to impact a country's ability to keep its lights on uh, has never been more obvious than it is at the moment. So certainly uh, national energy independence stroke resilience, I think, will become a, a much bigger issue going forward. Um, we're already seeing in the UK um, continued dependence on the amount of power we import into the UK over interconnectors. Now, if those countries uh, have a major um, issue around their generation, that will have a consequent impact on our ability to import and therefore a much longer term strategy for national resilience in the UK or indeed those countries that are exporting um, power to other countries uh, will come into sharp focus. A situation like this one will quickly focus business minds on a few areas which will determine how well their company will weather the storm. And one of those is undoubtedly capital. Many governments have made lots of capital available to their economies to make sure that there is confidence in markets that companies can continue to operate. This puts financial services companies right at the heart of an economy's ability to survive the crisis and to thrive once it's passed. But that process is not always a simple one, as Vincent Mason's financial services head, Alexis Roberts, points out. I mean, the great news is that the government has been very clear that it's going to support the banks in relation to, to lending. So, so they've taken the view, rightly, that it's absolutely critical that there is enough finance in the system for business to be able to continue as far as possible in the circumstances. And the banks are wholeheartedly uh, behind that and have been working hard to ensure that they're in a position to be able to extend their balance sheets to offer that lending. I think, though, when you get down into the, the, the granular detail of it, there are some challenges which uh, particularly the banks are, uh, are having to address. But so, for example, their dialogue will be with customers seeking uh, uh, lending in relation to the government's schemes as to whether it is available. And, and now, clearly, the banks can have their own view as to whether a particular situation falls within um, that, uh, that, 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 those schemes. Um, but clearly, there are some quite important interpretation issues which the banks are going to have to work through in order for them to be absolutely comfortable that their lending profile matches uh, the guarantees that are available from the government in relation to the schemes that have been announced by the Chancellor. There's a danger that, that if they get that wrong, uh, that, that they are uh, lending in circumstances where the guarantee doesn't apply or indeed, if they are too restrictive, then there may well be uh, PR issues which go with um, being too limited in the credit that they're willing to provide uh, to their customers. The kind of business disruption that we're seeing is something that many companies and individuals are insured against, meaning another area of financial services is systematically important if our societies and economies are to recover from the effects of the pandemic. So how is the insurance industry set for the challenges ahead? I think the first point is that insurers are taking their responsibilities very, very seriously. Um, so um, 
many of them are very, very committed to their customers in any event, but also will be deeply conscious of the regulatory obligation to treat customers fairly. And what that means is that they are looking at the interpretation of their policies to ensure that they are providing their uh, customers with the right, um, right cover in relation to the circumstances. The challenge, I think, is that often the, the wordings are not um, uh, as clear as they could be, not really out of any criticism of the insurers, but because the circumstances have, are so new and have developed and changed so quickly that actually uh, wordings put in place even a year ago, but often longer ago than that, will not necessarily be um, absolutely um, on point for dealing with the current circumstances. So there will often be interpretation issues um, to ensure that uh, the policy wordings are being applied correctly in the circumstances. And an important point to bear in mind here is that, albeit there is some similarity across the market in relation to particular product lines around the cover that's available, often there will actually be very different wordings. Um, so sometimes it's quite complex and difficult to assess whether, uh, you know, how those wordings respond in relation to a particular claims circumstance. And that's true whether it's travel insurance or, or wedding uh, and events insurance. The good news for insurance customers, whether retail or commercial, is that there is no suggestion at all at the moment that insurers aren't adequately capitalised to meet their obligations. There is plenty of finance available within financial markets and plenty of capital available within uh, insurer businesses to be able to respond to this crisis. And, and, a, and a big part of that is the measures that were put in place as a result of the global financial crisis to ensure that banks, insurers and other financial services firms had sufficient capital within their businesses to be able to respond to significant crises. Financial services companies will be handling and processing enormous amounts of sensitive personal data, but doing so using systems and processes that have been assembled at short notice to allow people to work from home. This generates new risks for firms in a sector where the mechanics of everyday business activity are highly regulated. The, the challenge is that where you have uh, all of your call centre staff or a very large proportion of them working from home, inevitably you don't have the ability from day one to, to apply the same systems and controls in relation to the way that data is um, retained, stored, processed, etc., um, so, so, so for financial services firms, the question is looking at that issue, working out what are the right steps to take in order to mitigate the risk as far as possible, and then implementing those across you know, what is now, um, whereas they might have had um, 10,000 people in one office, now having 10,000 people in 10,000 offices. So the ability to be able to scale those systems and controls out across that network it will be critical as well. Alexis says, though, that regulators realise that this is an extraordinary situation and will take account of that when considering action against companies if incidents do occur. There is certainly an understanding from the regulators that financial services firms will not be able to operate to the high level of um, uh, regulatory expectation that would have, would have existed prior to the crisis. I think also there's an understanding that the capital buffers that have been put in place as a result of the, the global financial crisis have ensured that the financial system is in a really, really robust position now to be able to respond to the crisis, but equally, as we are in a crisis, that, that it is appropriate to uh, relax uh, those buffers 
um, appropriately. So that that doesn't mean kind of a whole wholesale relaxation, but an acknowledgement that those buffers are there to be utilised in a crisis, and we're now in a crisis. So I think there is an understanding from the regulator that there will need to be a relaxation. Uh, and that applies importantly to conduct issues uh, as well and to systems and controls that financial services firms have in place to to manage regulatory risk within their business. I think the challenge though for businesses is that there's a difference between higher level indications from the regulators that they will uh, adopt a less robust approach uh, on the one hand and on the other hand applying that on a day-to-day basis in relation to how, how a financial services firm runs its business. So, so what what exactly is the uh, is the extent to which relaxation could occur in relation to a whole range of um, different day-to-day activities, whether around claims, whether around sales, whether around processing data, whatever it might be. And companies themselves, not just regulators, should be vigilant. These necessarily unorthodox processes can create opportunities for financial crime, something companies are already seeing. There are some staggering figures currently around the uptick in um, uh, cyber crime. So the the targeting of a whole range of different customers or financial services firms um, in relation to cyber crime. So I think inevitably, unfortunately, we will see an uptick in that. Many of that will be um, caught and addressed by financial services firms who have very, very sophisticated um, systems in place to identify it and stop it, but equally in circumstances where systems and controls are inevitably um, uh, not as implementable as they would have been pre-crisis, um, it is likely that some more of that will, will slip through than would have been the case um, prior to it. I think when regulators come to assess uh, those systems and controls in relation to financial crime after the fact, I think what critically they will look at is is what would have been realistic and reasonable in the circumstances. So I think in terms of managing financial crime, they won't look at financial services firms to be achieving the same level of systems and controls they would have had in place prior to the crisis. But they will uh, look at whether in all of the circumstances, bearing in mind what's reasonable and achievable in these circumstances, and bearing in mind the severity of the risk, whether financial services firms have adapted their systems appropriately to be able to respond to that enhanced risk. If there is a common theme emerging here in the early stages of coping with the implications of coronavirus, then it's cash and real estate is no different. James Crooks outlines what the implications are of a sudden drop off in revenue for different areas of the real estate sector. I mean, if you just look at the UK, and we know that of the two and a half billion pounds rent roll that was due on the 25th of March this year, it's thought that only about 30% of that was actually paid in full. So that's clearly going to create a significant cash flow issue for landlords. And already we know many clients have been speaking to us around what's their best tactic around that in terms of collaborating with their tenants, in terms of rent waivers, uh, deferring rent, perhaps even renegotiating the way in which rent is paid. These are all very important areas that landlords need to get right and need to get right with their tenants to make sure they're not prejudicing their ability to recover rent in the future and also obviously not damaging their relationship with their tenants in the long term. 
it's not all about rent, of course, and there are a number of subsectors within real estate are, that are being ha badly hit due to occupational demand or lack of it. So whether that's hotels for obvious reasons and uh, the way in which uh, revenues are received through hotels, student accommodation, and a lot of uncertainty at the moment about accommodation that's already been signed up for, especially if universities are not able to go back next term. Um, and housing, where a government advice has been to delay moving house at the moment, clearly that is going to have a significant impact on house builders in, in the short term in terms of cash flow. Um, these are all, again, areas that uh, that people need to be looking at. They need to be looking at the, the contracts that are already in place to see to see what that says around liabilities around that real estate. Um, there are costs incurred here as well, additional costs which may be incurred by uh, real estate providers, such as, for example, increased tax liabilities, whether that's council tax or other types of tax which have to be borne by the landlord. So again, these are all areas in which um, it's important to take advice. Investors, developers and operators are all going to be looking at significant delays to their projects, James says, caused by a host of coronavirus-related issues. And we're seeing delay across the board now uh, in real estate transactions. So whether that's pure investment transactions where due to uh, perhaps barriers being put up around lending, uh, whether deals are simply slowing down because it's more difficult to undertake due diligence, um, it's harder to undertake valuations when there are fewer comparables, and also delays because, for example, if, if uh, rent waivers have been put in place, uh, that can have an impact on rent underwrites that are agreed as part of investment sales and development fundings. So we're seeing delays in transactions and it's important that, again, people revisit the documentation that's been entered into around those. But more particularly around development work, so whether that's delays as a result of conditionality around planning, we know that the Coronavirus Act has uh, brought in new provisions to allow um, planning permissions to be granted, but regulations need to be drafted. Uh, they're not in place yet. So what potential delays will that cause to obtaining planning permissions? Also, all your obvious points around supply chain for goods in terms of uh, delivery uh, contract. What's the contractor liability as opposed to the developer's liability? How's, how are parties going to gain access to the site to carry out the works? And what's the impact of all of this on delays to a program or even force majeure ability to terminate the contract? These, again, really important points, very important to revisit those documents if they're already in place place and if you're currently in negotiations around these these agreements um, what's the best position to be taking and whether that's in development agreements or whether that's in agreements for lease. There are very practical issues for landlords in particular to think about. Lots of questions that companies should be asking themselves and their business partners to ensure that they're prepared for discussions with clients and suppliers. If you own real estate particularly if you're a landlord or an operator around real estate What's your ability to provide the services that you need to provide and actually to draw down on the service providers who come and do that for you? What's your ability to close the building completely and what claims might tenants or other occupiers have against you? Um, what about communal areas and your health and safety requirements around providing uh, hand washing facilities and so many other things? So there could be increased costs uh, associated with that. Are you able to re recover those costs from third parties or simply the ability to provide those services at all or close buildings down? These, again, 
all very important areas where it's important to get the right advice. Um, and of course, there's a potential here for this to create disputes. Uh, and the last thing that anybody wants is to create disputes in these areas. These are all areas where it's important to look at the documentation so that can inform those collaborative discussions with counterparties to find our communal way through this so that the real estate industry ends up a more successful place once we are, are out of this coronavirus epidemic. There's a role for the public sector in helping to ensure that funding and planning are in place for real estate projects on the other side of this situation. But innovation too may get a boost as companies learn lessons from the crisis and seek to do business a little differently. A situation such as created by coronavirus, perhaps the only entity that ultimately can see a way through and collaborate with everybody to make sure that deals continue to happen and the wheels keep turning is the public sector. And therefore, the extent to which we might see great collaboration between public and private sector, um, a lot of those models exist already and have been through various iterations. But I can foresee a time that uh, greater public-private collaboration will 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 take place, especially around, for example, some of the garden villages, the garden cities, garden communities that have been talked about already, developing tens of thousands of new homes with all the social infrastructure and infrastructure around them. Um, the ability to bring together the public and private sector in a coordinate, coordinated way to create the regulation and the funding and the programme for bringing those forward, I think might become increasingly important. And I suppose a final area is around prop tech, whether that's how deals are done, how real estate is constructed, how it's operated so that all buildings are operated to be more efficient and to be um, better attuned to the occupational requirements of their people. I think we may find that the use of prop tech is accelerated now to, again, create greater efficiencies as to how people use real estate and people find a new norm where uh, perhaps real estate is, is used in a different way, but also how buildings are designed and can be operated more cheaply. The business issues caused by COVID-19 are many and varied, and we can't hope to capture them all here. But do check out the hour-by-hour coverage from our Outlaw reporting team at www.pincentmasons.com forward slash coronavirus, where you can sign up for updates. But hopefully this has given you a sense of the challenges in each of the five sectors we've looked at, and an indication of how companies are rising to meet them. Thanks to our sector heads, James Crooks, Alexis Roberts, Paul Rice, Ian Lang and Florian von Baum for their insight. Don't forget to subscribe to us whenever you get your podcasts and stay safe and well. Until next time, goodbye. Brain Food for General Counsel was produced and presented by Matthew McGee for Pinsent Masons, the international professional services firm with law at its core.